Psalm 6. You'll notice a somewhat lengthy title to the chief musician, Neganoth. Don't ask me to explain Neganoth. If you can't find a commentator to explain it, fat chance that I'll be able to. But I think, uh, generally speaking, it's regarded as some sort of musical instrument. To the chief musician on Neganoth, upon Shemineth, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are vexed. My soul is also sore vexed, but thou, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver my soul. O save me for thy mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All the night make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Mine eye is consumed because of grief. It waxeth old because of all mine enemies. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. For the Lord hath heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord hath heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all mine enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. Let them return and be ashamed suddenly. The thing to keep in mind about this psalm that it is a psalm of David. And we know David to be a man after God's own heart. And yet, what you find David doing in this psalm is mourning, lamenting over his sin and his weakness. It's the mark of a godly man, the mark of a man after God's own heart, that he is that sensitive to his own sin. Then if you would look with me in Matthew chapter 5. This is the very beginning now of the Sermon on the Mount. This is Christ's sermon. And I, I better not let this opportunity go by to say again what I say every time we turn to any part of the Sermon on the Mount. Best sermon ever preached by the best preacher that ever lived. This is Christ's sermon. We do well to give heed to it. Verse 1, Matthew 5. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. We'll end our reading right there in verse 2. And I end it there very deliberately because I take uh, uh, there to be a close connection between verse 4 and the psalm that we just read that illustrates so vividly the words of verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, let me just clarify some things at the beginning. I, you probably all know this, but I'm not going to presume anything. 
when you think of mourning in the way that I will be using the term now, I am not referring to that time of day when the sun rises and you begin your day in the morning. Uh, no, this is a different kind of mourning. This is the morning of lamentation, you could call it. Uh, an exercise of sorrow uh, and grief. Sorrow and grief in particular over things that will uh, take up in the course of the study. But I want you to understand, don't make any um, confusing connections in your mind with the kind of mourning now that uh, the Lord is talking about and that I'll be talking about. This beatitude, interestingly enough, confronts us with two contrasting emotions that on the surface run contrary to each other. If the word blessed, blessed are they that mourn, if the word blessed means happy, and it does, then how do we find those that are mourning being happy? Those that mourn are, as a general rule, sad. Those that are happy, as a general rule, have escaped the realm of mourning or weeping or sorrow. How can the Lord Jesus say then, blessed are they that mourn? Isn't that a little bit like saying, those that experience pain feel good? Or those that laugh are sad? Well, the dilemma of these conflicting emotions underscores the truth that we're dealing with something that is spiritual in nature. It also underscores the truth that we're dealing with a matter that the world cannot comprehend. We're dealing, you see, with that which pertains to the kingdom of heaven. You could take the Sermon on the Mount to Say, it's a sermon that pertains to kingdom living, the kingdom of heaven. This is the kingdom that the Lord Jesus established on this earth. This is the kingdom that requires nothing short of a supernatural new birth to enter. <coughs> this beatitude, you see, is as impossible to the natural man as the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And just as the natural man in his pride and self-sufficiency loathes the idea of being dependent on anyone or anything, especially God, and that is the meaning of the first beatitude when we speak of someone who is poor in spirit, we speak of a man who recognizes he is not sufficient of himself to think anything as of himself, but his sufficiency is of God. He's dependent on God. He's poor in spirit, and the world despises that. And so does the natural man fail to comprehend how those that mourn can be blessed. If the second beatitude shares something in common with the first beatitude, it would be that both of them call for honesty before God. And if we are honest before God, then we will acknowledge that we're completely dependent on Him where our salvation is concerned. 
And if we're honest before him, then we'll also acknowledge that there is much over which we can and should mourn or weep or be sorrowful. We are a fallen race, after all. And all you need to do to mourn is contemplate what was lost in the fall of mankind. Mankind lost its innocence. We lost our original righteousness. We lost communion with God and instead inherited an estate of sin and misery. You gained a depraved nature and you earned the wages of sin, which is death. And this estate of sin and misery is something that not only affects you personally, but its effects are felt all around you. Indeed, its effects are felt, one could argue, by the entire creation. So Paul tells us in Romans 8 and verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. It's as if the entire creation knows that things are not now what they were originally. And this common intuition about the origin of creation and current state of things creates a universal groaning, as it were. You could say that the creation all around us mourns the current state of things. And against this backdrop of a sin-cursed world, can be found those that refuse to see beyond it. These are the ones that are so tied to this world that their entire purpose for existing is to draw whatever pleasures they can for, for the brief years that they're here. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, would be their philosophy of life. And the idea of having to mourn over anything cuts across the grain of eating and drinking and being merry. Well, there are times, to be sure, when even those in the world must mourn. They're forced at times through tragedy to have to acknowledge painful realities that they would just as soon forget. And they never consider such times to be times of blessing. They consider such times rather to be times that need to be put away quickly so they can go back to eating and drinking and being merry. They dread the idea of mourning. And yet it is the ones who mourn that our Lord pronounces as blessed. Blessed are they that mourn or they shall be comforted. The blessing, of course, is found in the comfort or the consolation. And we know this term comfort is used quite often in the New Testament in connection with the Holy Spirit and his ministry to the people of God. It's a word that describes one coming alongside of. You sometimes hear, maybe you're familiar with the term paraclete. That is a term that is sometimes used for the Holy Spirit. That means one who comes alongside of. 
And so it is that it is that when the requirement of this beatitude is met, we can expect that God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit will come alongside to uphold and sustain and assure us that all is well and that God is in control and that we belong to Christ, come what may, and that the best is yet to come when the present state of things gives way at last to a new heaven and a new earth. I want to tell you I've been blessed up to this point. We haven't gotten very far into it, but I've been uh, very blessed to be facilitating the course in eschatology to Richard Craig. It's given me opportunity to listen to Mark Allison's lectures on eschatology and to read what I'm taking to be perhaps one of the best books I've ever read on the topic of eschatology by Anthony Hokema. And the thing that I love about the course and that I love about this author's uh, outlook is that eschatology serves the purpose of making us look ahead. We look ahead to better things to come. We're not so captured by this world that we can't see beyond it. So what I want to call your attention to this afternoon in the moments that remain is this second beatitude. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what I want us to consider is the comfort that comes to those that mourn. The comfort that comes to those that mourn. And in order to gain the blessing of this comfort, there are certain things that must be understood and appreciated, some things that need to be distinguished. Think with me, first of all, that we must know something of the nature of this mourning. The Lord has something uh, very definite in view when he says, blessed are they that mourn. He is not holding out a blank check, so to speak, that pertains to any and every kind of mourning. There is a right kind and a wrong kind of mourning. Paul draws a, a very clear distinction between them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, where we read, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner. And that word, were made sorry, uh, that conveys the concept of mourning, being made sorry. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Well, you see in those verses very clearly how Paul makes a distinction between a right and a wrong kind of sorrow, a right mourning and a wrong kind of mourning. Godly sorrow and the sorrow of the world are two kinds of mourning that are contrasted in those verses. The world's sorrow could be described in a number of ways. For example, the world's sorrow can be described as the sorrow that comes when the sinner is denied his sin. Sinners mourn, in other words, when they can't have their sin. They mourn when their conscience acts to accuse them of their sin. 
They meet resistance to their sin by the accusing voice of their conscience. And that causes them to mourn, not over the sin, but over the conscience that's accusing them. You recall the struggle that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7? The things that he would not, he finds himself doing. The things that he would, he finds himself not doing. It's actually a matter of controversy among some commentators as to whether or not Paul is describing the Christian or an unbeliever in that passage in Romans. I can remember discussing the matter many years ago with a student at Bob Jones. This man was working on his Ph.D. at the time, and in the course of his studies, he had discovered from the writings of the Greek philosopher Plato language that was very similar to the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 7. So striking was the resemblance that I suppose some would think that Paul perhaps was drawing from this Greek philosopher when he writes the way he does in Romans 7. The similarity between Paul and Plato at any rate led this student to conclude that the conflict being described by Paul exists in the minds also of those that are unsaved. Now, I have no doubt that a struggle does exist in the minds of unsaved sinners, but the struggle is the complete opposite of what Paul is describing in Romans 7. The struggle in the case of the sinner is between his desire for sin and his conscience that tells him that his sin is wrong. He doesn't want to hear that. He hates that. He mourns over the fact that his desire for sin meets resistance, and in some cases, he may attribute the resistance not so much to his conscience as he does to social norms that he feels are the unfair result of Christianity being imposed upon his culture. He mourns that. Needless to say, that kind of mourning is anything but blessed of God. Indeed, his mourning is as much sin as the act of sin itself. His mourning will eventually lead him to hell, and hell will be a place of mourning forever. Hell, you see, is a place that is described by weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here is the very opposite of being blessed in mourning. Indeed, hell is the place where sinners are cursed in their mourning, and they're given over to their mourning. They lament the fact that they're condemned. They lament the fact that they're given over to their sinful natures, but with no way to gratify their sinful lusts. I remember many years ago now when we still lived in Greenville, I was asked by somebody in our church to visit a relative of theirs in prison. I remember making that trip, and visiting this man who lamented more than anything else the lack of opportunity to be physically involved with his girlfriend when she came to visit him. That just couldn't happen in prison. And he lamented that. He grieved over that. That was one of the most painful 
parts of prison for him. How much worse will the everlasting abyss be when men will be given over to the full potential of their sinful natures, but with no opportunity to satisfy their sinful desires? Oh, thank God this afternoon, if you've escaped such a place of torment, there may be much in this sinful world to make us mourn as Christians, but the mourning we undergo will go no further than this world. And so we see that there are certain kinds of mourning that are not blessed of the Lord. What kind of mourning are we talking about then? When the Lord Jesus says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Paul describes the right kind of mourning in the verses I cited earlier from 2 Corinthians 7. He refers to the right kind of mourning as godly sorrow. I think it would be fair to say that one of the reasons it's called godly sorrow is because this sorrow makes reference to God and reflects a consciousness that all sin is ultimately against God, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. David cries in Psalm 51 and verse 4. This kind of mourning, then, contains a sufficient knowledge of God to make the believer realize that sin is a high crime against one that is majestic in splendor and pure in his character. To confess sin in the true sense of the word means to say the same thing about sin that God says about it. Confession, you could say, takes God's side. And that's what we find David doing in Psalm 51 when he says that God is justified when he speaks and clear when he judges. There is a difference, you see, between being sorry for sin and being sorry for the consequences of sin that fall upon you. Godly sorrow knows something of the high crime of sin, when it's committed against the thrice holy God. But not only does godly sorrow make reference to the character of God, but it also produces the right action on the part of the believer. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, Paul writes. Godly sorrow, in other words, is a work of grace wrought upon the heart of the believer. It is this work of grace that leads the believer in the words of our shorter catechism question, the answer to question 87, to a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. So he doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Such then is the nature of the mourning that Christ calls blessed. It stands in contrast to the world's mourning, and it leads us humbly to Christ. If you would gain the comfort that comes to those that mourn, you must then know something of the true nature of mourning for sin, 
And in close connection with knowing the nature of the morning that the Lord calls blessed, consider with me next, we must appreciate the reasons for our mourning. The reasons for our mourning. I've touched upon some of these already under the previous heading, but let me go over some of these reasons again and to extend the list a little bit. We mourn over our sins because sin is an offense to God. Against thee, the only have I sinned. We read a moment ago from Psalm 51. Let me add here that it is only when the knowledge of God has become so slight that sinning against God can be taken so lightly. You remember from Genesis 19, when the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, how the angel of the Lord had to literally take Abraham's nephew Lot by the hand and lead him out of the city and instruct him to flee to the mountain in order to, be, to avoid being consumed. Even then, Lot tried to negotiate with the angel and pleaded with him that he might instead flee to the city of Zoar. So we read in Genesis 19 and verse 20, this is Lot speaking, Behold now, this city is near to flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. Is it not a little one? And my soul shall live. I'm afraid that Lot's statement expresses the way that we quite often view sin. My sin is just a little one. Is it not a little one, we reason? And the thing that enables us to reduce the seriousness of sin is the sad truth that our knowledge of God's glory is so dim. Indeed, that knowledge is so slight that we find expressions in the Psalms that show us why sinners think they can get away with sin. Psalm 10 and verse 11, he has said in his heart, God hath forgotten. He hideth his face. He will never see it. Or Psalm 64 in verse 5, they encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying snares privily. They say, who shall see them? Or Psalm 94 in verse 7, yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Such statements reveal a very dim knowledge of the holy once, however, the Lord diffuses a quickening ray into our hearts that enables us to see somewhat more clearly into that dark glass, and we perceive in some measure the glory of Christ, we all of a sudden realize that sin is highly offensive to the glory of God. Sin is now seen as a high crime because it's seen as being committed against an infinitely glorious being. And that leads us to mourn. We mourn because we realize how far we've fallen to think that we were created to behold God in His glory and to openly communicate or commune with God in His glory, only to be so reduced in our knowledge of God by our fall into sin that the natural man can go so far as to question whether or not God even exists. The very question only demonstrates the awful depths 
to which sinful man is plunged. So we lament our sins because they testify how far we've fallen. We lament them as well because of what they deserve. The wages of sin is death. We deserve to be cut off from God. We deserve to be cast into everlasting torment. We deserve the eternal scourges of our conscience reminding us that we're guilty, guilty of high crimes, guilty of countless crimes, guilty of transgression, and guilty of failures to measure up to what we were supposed to be. We're guilty of misdeeds. We're guilty of misspoken words. We're guilty of countless crimes that we've harbored in our hearts that would have found their way into our actions were it not for God's restraining power against our sins. We're guilty of pulling ourselves down, and we're guilty of pulling others down. We're guilty of countless contributions to a culture of rebellion against God. We have good reason to mourn, therefore, and we have many reasons to mourn. And could I just add to these reasons this thought? We have reason to mourn when we consider what our sins brought upon Christ. The weight of what he bore defies calculation when we think of the guilt of our sins being imputed to him. And when we think of the punishment that was unleashed upon him, we can only bow our heads and mourn. We cannot plumb the depths of what he bore. Oh, there is plenty that we are allowed to see. We're allowed to see him apprehended and mocked and beaten and spit upon. We're allowed to see him being flogged and having a crown of thorns pressed into his brow. And we're allowed to see him being led away to Mount Calvary, where we behold strong men driving nails into his hands and feet and then suspending him between heaven and earth, nailed to a cross, We're allowed to see the Son of God crucified, in other words, and this in itself bears some testimony to the awfulness of our sins. But when the time comes for the crowning penal affliction to be unleashed upon Christ, even the severance of his Father's love, not even the authors of Holy Scripture are allowed to attempt to describe that scene. They must instead report that a veil of darkness was drawn across the land from the sixth to the ninth hour, and from behind that veil of darkness we are able to hear our Savior's cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here at the cross, then, is where we truly learn to mourn over our sins. Zechariah prophesies of a future time for the Jews. In Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10, he writes, They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him, as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him, as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. In that day shall there be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad-Rimon in the valley of Megiddo. They will mourn then, but we may mourn now, especially as we realize that it was our sins that pierced him. 
It was our iniquities that brought about his sufferings. It was our transgressions that left him suspended between heaven and earth and subjected to his father's wrath. So we have many reasons for which we can and should mourn over our sins. This last reason, however, which pertains to what our sins brought upon Christ, brings us to the transition point between mourning and being comforted. Consider with me, therefore, that in order to gain the comfort that comes to those who mourn in the right way and for the right reasons, thirdly and finally, we must know and appreciate the grounds for our comfort. And let me emphasize at this point that in spite of all that we've considered about mourning, mourning with godly sorrow and mourning for the right reasons, mourning over our sins, the point must be clarified and emphasized that there is no merit to our mourning. The hymn writer certainly captured this truth when he wrote, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. There's another hymn in our hymn book written by Horatius Bonner that also puts it well. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers or sighs or tears can ease my awful load. Thy work alone, my Savior, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. There's an interesting passage in Isaiah that Christ quotes in Luke's Gospel. It makes reference to the Spirit of the Lord being upon Christ to preach good tidings to the meek. And in verse 2 it says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. And would you note the order? First comes the day of vengeance of our God. Then comes the comforting of all that mourn. Surely such a day of vengeance came when God visited his only begotten Son with the vengeance of offended justice upon our sins. Here is the grounds for our comfort then. God has judged our sins when he judged his Son in our place. Isaiah again captures the transition from mourning to comfort when he writes in chapter 38 in verse 17, Behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. Our peace was lost by the fall of man, and great bitterness was our portion. But Christ has loved us with a love that would take him all the way to Calvary's cross. And based on what he accomplished at the cross, Isaiah could write, Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. 
It is on the grounds of his atoning work, therefore, that Christ himself could speak through Isaiah and say that he would appoint unto them that mourn in Zion to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planning of the Lord, that he might be glorified. As I said near the beginning of our study, kingdom living calls on the subjects of the kingdom of heaven to be honest before God. What a blessing then that we need not skirt the issue of sin in our lives. We need not deny it or invent excuses for it. We need not downplay, as some do, the magnitude of our sin or our guilt. What we do, rather, is to honestly, honestly and humbly acknowledge our sins, or in other words, we mourn over our sins. And in the process of our mourning, the Spirit of Christ comes alongside us, and he testifies to us that Christ is ours and we are his. The Spirit reminds us of Christ's nail-scarred hands, that our sins have been paid for and that we have been redeemed. He testifies to us that with the shedding of his blood, we have been reconciled to him and have been brought into the family of God. And based on the shedding of his blood, he teaches us how he can be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as a result of what he says to us by his spirit and through his word, we enter into the joy of being comforted. Oh, there is certainly much in this world, isn't there, that can lead us to mourn. We mourn over the departure of our nation from its heritage of godliness. We mourn over what could be considered the deplorable state of Christianity in our day. We mourn over what appears to be uh, the success of compromise and apostasy, and we mourn over our own inability to seem to be able to stem such a flood tide of iniquity. And then we mourn over our own sins and shortcomings. It grieves us that all too often we find ourselves cold and hard-hearted toward the things of God. This is all part of kingdom living. And it certainly represents for some of us a vast change to the way we used to be. We used to mourn over our inability or lack of opportunity to gratify our carnal lusts. The power of the gospel has changed that. And now we mourn over the sins that too easily beset us. Thank God we're not left to our mourning. Thank God that such mourning indicates that we are the true subjects of the kingdom of heaven. And thank God we are blessed in our mourning because Christ himself testifies to us that our sins are under the blood. Kingdom living, then, is humble living, which leaves no room for pride, and it's blessed living because it issues in great assurance 
that we are accepted in the Beloved and that we are accepted for Jesus' sake. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee that through the power of the gospel old things have passed away and all things have become new. And among the things that have passed away, it includes our attitude towards sin. We used to love it. We used to cleave to it. We used to strive for it. We used to mourn when we couldn't have access to it. We thank thee, Lord, for changing that. We recognize, O Lord, that even now as Christians, we are far from perfect. But, O Lord, we are comforted to know that by thy grace our outlook has been changed. Where once we used to love sin and hate Christ, now we love Christ and we hate our sin. May we love him the more. And as we view him suspended between heaven and earth on, on Calvary's cross, may we gain strong motivation for waging effective warfare against our sins that we mourn over. We thank thee for the glorious truth that they are forgiven. Now, Lord, in thy power, help us in our mourning to overcome them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.